All right, here's my question. When you were 14 years old, what were you up to? You're 14 years old, what were you doing? When I was 14 years old, I was talking to my wife about this because I, I, I struggled to remember what age I was and what grade because of where my birthday hit, but I think that's like eighth or ninth grade. And as you're thinking about yourself in the eighth or ninth grade, when I say, what are you doing? You're probably thinking, what was my leisure time activity? Who were my friends? Where was I hanging out? What was my class? What was my favorite teacher? I don't care about any of that. Here's what I'm wondering. Do you remember receiving any level of responsibility at that age? So you're coming close to getting the learner's permit at 15 years old. So maybe your parents wanted you to do this, that, or the other to be able to go and take the test. You, you may be playing on a sports team where you're the captain. You may just be picking who is going to be on your team in kickball. But what did life look like for you at 14 years old? I'll go ahead and tell you what it looked like for me. I woke up late. I very quickly went to the bathroom, showered, brushed teeth, got my hair as best as I could, grabbed a t-shirt, pair of jeans, kicks, and I hopped into the bus. I then opened up my backpack and tried to determine what I had not done and what classes were first. If none of you did homework on the bus, you are not my people, all right? I, I was constantly like, what is first period? English, I'm never gonna get that done. All right, going to second period, math, I might be able to pull this off. And that was what it was. I get on the bus, I try to figure it out, show up to school, meander all the way through, get on the bus, and I have this decision. Am I gonna do my homework, or am I gonna hang out with my friends? I'm gonna hang out with my friends. I can do my homework the next morning on the bus, and everything's going to go great, wash, rinse, and repeat. 14 years old is when Mary was approached by an angel of God saying, got a, got a small responsibility for you. And it is raising the son of God who is going to be the savior for all people. Incredible. Now, Jess already read this, but if you would, go ahead and flip in your Bibles to Luke chapter one, verse 34. Now, this is gonna appear behind me because I, I want you to see the structure of this scripture, not just the content of this scripture. So I want you to imagine for a moment that this, I'm gonna read like four verses here, 34 to 37. Yep, four verses. The very first verse and the very last verse are going to be like the covers of a book and then all the content is in the middle. And on the covers you hear Mary and you see Mary sort of wrestling with who she is in this and then in the center is the context. All right, just check this out, verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Verse 35, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, because for, here's the explanation, nothing will be impossible with God. Verse 38, and Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. All right, let me get your eyeballs for just a minute. Notice the structure of this. This incredible happening occurs in Mary's life, 14 years old, level of maturity of a 14-year-old. Now, don't get me wrong. I think God makes great decisions when he calls people to do certain things. From the way that Mary lives her life from this point forward, it seems like from the way that she writes, we're going to look at something that she wrote tonight, this seems like a 14-year-old girl who is very serious about her relationship with the Lord. She knows the word of God. She is seeking after him, and yet the moment that God shows up 
and says, I have a massive plan for you. Her first response, the most beautiful response, our first response should be, how can this be since I Now, in her case, it was the fact that she'd never been with a man. You're talking about pregnancy. You're talking about a kid. But I think that there's a lot more tucked into this. Mary is looking at herself and saying, how am I supposed to live up to the storyline that you are saying was already written for me? All of these lines written, all of these motions written. How am I supposed to live up to this responsibility every time the word Mary comes up in the grand storyline of Scripture? How am I supposed to do that? And the beauty of God's answer is this. The Holy Spirit will. Because nothing is impossible with God. And Mary's response is, whatever you say, God. Let it be. I am the servant of the Lord. Most of you in this room are older than 14 years old. I'd be willing to bet Every one of us in this room is not going to be called to that level of responsibility. But here's the question. Are you willing to be a part of the story? When, when I was in the ninth grade, I was a part of a play called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which I assume most of you guys know. Uh, I, Will, was cast in the role of Goblin One and... I love, why are y'all laughing about that? You can't have a goblin too if you don't have a goblin one. Just back off, you're a high horse, all right? I didn't want to be Peter. I didn't want to be Edmund. I didn't want to be any of those people that had long lines because that takes a lot of responsibility and time. You know what? I wanted to be goblin number one. And goblin number one had one responsibility. We'd done this play so many times. We were now at a competition, like a state competition. It was the most embarrassing time of my life because I had to wear a full green unitard. Like, that's what I remember, right? None of my, I didn't have any lines. But I just remember having to go in the bathroom and put on a Peter Pan unitard and be like, how did a Christian write this for me so many years ago? So I'm off stage left, goblined out. Aslan, this big lion, is being captured and tied up. My one responsibility was to bring in the rope to tie him up. And I come out like a goblin, and it hits me. I don't have the rope. I don't even know where the rope is. Am I supposed to goblin off and find one and come back? Am I going to throw off everybody's timing? Do I pantomime it? None of the judges know. And I absolutely ruined the one job I had. Here's what I am inviting every one of us into. We've all had responsibilities, and we've all flubbed on those responsibilities. That's true. Not all of them, but you've made mistakes. Most of us, I'd be willing to say every one of us have heard the Christmas story in some capacity. Here's what I'm asking. You are sitting in a chair looking at a guy standing on a stage. You are in passive reception mode. Here's what I'm asking. Please, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, enter in to what it must have been like to be Mary in these moments. If you want to get the most out of God's word tonight that you can, enter in to what it must have been like to be her in this. Pray with me. Father, every one of your words was written 
for us, for your people, to find encouragement and hope and conviction. And Father, the word that is swelling up in my spirit right now is belief, that, that we would hear a story that we have heard so many times before as we enter into a season that we have navigated so many times before, but that in this advent, in this moment, in this culmination of waiting that we see in Scripture, that we would be a patient people. That we would recognize that every time somebody points to a star, they're pointing to the light that was sent into the darkness. When they point to a a tree, they are pointing to a greater tree that was lifted up upon which your son was. Whenever we look at this beautifully ornamented tree, we take this living thing, chop it down, prop it up, and put tons of lights and things on it to make it look alive. That we would remember that your son was put on a tree after you put him in a cradle, in a manger, so that his life would be extinguished, that his life would go out so that we could find hope, that we could find meaning, that we could find life, that we could find a place to leave every one of our sins, every one of our mistakes, and just ask for your forgiveness through the belief in Christ that you give us the ability to have. Fill every one of us up this night with that kind of belief. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so what I'd like you to do is now look in your Bibles at verse 46. All right, we're in Luke 1. We've read all the way up to 46. So this thing happens to Mary, and Mary breaks into song. I don't know if you've ever written a song. I tried to write a song while I was dating, and it was just a hot mess. So I stuck to Third Day and other things that Christians had written. I tried to learn how to play it, and I got to the F chord, and I gave up. So if it was a song with like an A, a G, an E minor, and a C, I would rock that thing out all day long. Nothing else. But when people write songs, the best songs, they're not just describing a heart or a situation. They're not describing a feeling of the writer. The writer is inviting you in. So Mary invites you in to her own song. What is the purpose of this song? We get that in the very beginning. Verse 46, and Mary said, my soul magnifies, makes big, makes as great as my soul possibly can, the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. How do we know that Mary had belief? How do we know that Mary had faith? Well, I'll tell you, if God had given me a huge responsibility and I didn't believe he was gonna give me the ability to carry it out, I would not be rejoicing. I would not be magnifying. I would be anxious and worried and concerned. But Mary, upon hearing this, is already filled with the very belief belief that God is calling her to have to lay this thing out. And so she gives us the purpose of the song. For me, for Mary, to praise God because he is a God for whom nothing is impossible. And she moves from the purpose of praising God to the basis. Why should you praise God tonight? When we get ready to come up for communion, when we get ready to close in song, why should you, specifically you, praise him? Based on what should your praise flow from? I was reading a, a, common, a commentary on this, and what they said was, what's fascinating about the next line that you and I are going to read from this song that Mary wrote is this. She could have been very personal. She could have sort of opened her diary and shown us a page, but she writes this in a way that every believer can attach themselves to. What does she say? For God has looked on the humble estate of his servant. 
God, every one of us who came to belief in Christ, some of you guys walked down an aisle, some of you raised a hand, some of you grabbed a counselor at summer camp, some of you were just in your bedroom with, with, uh, with a Bible on the floor, in all of these different ways, you came to faith. But however you came to faith, none of you did it proud. Every one of us came to faith through humility, recognizing we were busted and God was awesome. And she goes on and says this, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And he who is mighty has done great things for me. We just sang it. And holy is his name. Come on, button. There we go. I used to sort of have an issue with Mary's line there. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. That's what it felt like. I mean, Mary's given credit for being humble, but what do you care if all generations are calling you blessed? And then it struck me, and it didn't strike me until this year while I was reading, writing this sermon. I think what Mary is actually saying is this. Behold, from now on, for all eternity, all generations are going to call me blessed? Little me, 14-year-old me. The, the, the me who has made all of these mistakes, the me who knows all of my thoughts and all of my actions, how is a world 2,000 plus years later gonna look back and look into a manger scene on your way home tonight and see this, I don't know why she always wears blue, see this young lady in blue holding this baby and she's saying, I get that spot and I didn't do anything to deserve it. How great is our God that he chooses someone like me. And then the, the last part of this song, and this really is the lion's share, verses 50 all the way to 55, Mary cannot quit talking about who God is. How amazing he is. In fact, the subject of every verb for the rest of this is God. Check it out, you'll see it, it'll appear behind me. His mercy, talking about God, is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with, strength with his arm. He scatters the proud and the thoughts of their own hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. He, 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 he. I don't know if you've seen this. Um, there's a trend right now, uh, because it's Christmas, everybody kind of starts watching movies. It's like the big thing. Uh, all of my kids want to know, toward the end of every night, are we watching a movie tonight? Are we going to watch Home Alone? Are we going to watch Elf? Are we going to watch a movie? And, and uh, a big trend right now is for people who love the Harry Potter movies, which as a pastor, I can't make a recommendation on, but they love the Harry Potter movies. They're inviting their friends who have never seen them to watch the entire series. And what they're doing is they're videoing their response at the end of each film. I don't know how many there are. I think there's like seven or something like that. And what's so funny is you watch these people and, and I mean, it's just these teeny little clips, five seconds, five seconds, five seconds. And it gets to the end of movie one and they're like, oh, that was really good. It's better than I thought. You know, I thought I was going to be like, yeah, 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 I'm a nerd with my fireball, right? And they're like, oh, this is really, really good. And they get to the second movie and you can tell they're getting more invested. They get to the third or fourth and all of a sudden tissues are coming out and they move on and they end up being hot messes and girls have their mascara running. Why? It's a fictional story. There's not, there's not a thread in that thing that's real. I hope I'm not messing up anybody's cosplay plans over Christmas. It's not real. And yet our hearts connect. Why? Because every one of you was built to be a part 
of a story. Every one of you. And, and, and we make our own stories up and we enter into our own stories. But here's what I want you to imagine for a minute. If you were to take the entire Bible and hold it in your hands and slice it into Old Testament and New Testament. Now, all I'm doing is I'm holding the New Testament. Do you realize that almost every story in the Old Testament ends with a cliffhanger? It ends with a fade to black moment and you don't know what's going to come next. I'm just going to cherry pick off of some mountaintop vistas from the Old Testament. In Genesis 3.15, sin enters into the world. Adam and Eve are like, well, now what's going to happen? We're being kicked out. We had this beautiful place in the presence of God. Everything was wonderful. And I listened to one lie and I took one bite and I stood by for one moment too long. And now my entire life is messed up. And God speaks this promise and he says, yes, but Genesis 3.15, there's going to come a day when I am going to make this right. There's going to come a day. And it fades to black and Adam and Eve never see it. Cliffhanger holds. Moses shows up on the scene. And, and, and Moses is pursuing the Lord. And all of a sudden, this bush catches on fire. And God's like, I've got this massive plan for you. You're going to become my people who hear my law. And I'm going to send you to my place. And as they start getting close, oh, here's God's law. And he looks over his shoulder. Golden calf. Throws the things down. Finally comes down. Oh, and here comes the promised land. And Moses dies looking on and cannot enter it. His eyes close. It fades to black. They get these plans for an incredible tabernacle, this temple, where finally God is going to meet with his people. He's going to dwell with them. He's going to tabernacle with them. And as soon as they get it, the the spirit of God comes and fills it, but all of a sudden the holy of holies is out of reach. So out of reach for the common man because of our sin, because of our brokenness. This place, which is supposed to be God meeting with us, has a curtain that separates us from him. And generation after generation die, their eyes close. They fade to black and they cliffhang. Isaiah 9. There is a day coming in the prophets when I, being speaking of God, am going to dwell with you. And Isaiah's eyes close and Micah's eyes close and Joel's eyes close, and it fades to black. The Old Testament is full of open-ended promises, fade-to-black realities, and generations of cliffhangers. You ever feel like that's your life? That these things that you're waiting on, are they even going to happen? Are they going to happen in my lifetime? Is it just going to be a fade-to-black moment? Here's what I want you to be excited about. I don't know the answer to that question. Not that. Don't be excited about that. That's the hard part. All of a sudden, Old Testament, Old Testament, Old Testament, fade to black, cliffhanger, fade to black, cliffhanger. Then Jesus shows up and everything changes. You know what we celebrate at the Advent? We put stars on top of our trees because there was this weird light that was out of place because God was saying it's not going to fade to black much longer. The the reason we stuff gifts under our trees is because the gift was being given to the world to guarantee that nobody was going to be left on a cliff wondering if they get to have a relationship with the one who created them, designed them, and loved them to the greatest extent of his heart. When Jesus comes, all of that goes away, Luke 145. Why? Because of belief. 
And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. How many things have you read in Scripture, believed in, and then walked away from and forgotten about? Probably more than you can count. How many prayers have been prayed for this dark moment in the soul, this cliffhanging decision that needed to be made, and you don't even remember it now? How many? You see, Jesus invites us into this story. But can I tell you what we do so wrong? We get the script and you see Goblin 1. And Goblin 1 doesn't do anything at the beginning. Everything's great and kids are in Narnia and animals are talking and light posts and snow and fawns and music. Oh, it's just all this wonderful thing. Goblin 1 gets one little piece of the stage, one teeny little moment. Your life may have one teeny little moment in the grand narrative of Scripture, but here's the question. Do you capture it? Do you see that responsibility that God has given you to lead up to that moment? I don't know what that moment is for you. That moment for you may be having the conversation, sharing your faith when you don't want to do it. You've always been the person who, like, the Lord puts it on your heart to share your faith with somebody, and you're like, "Eh, I'm going to pray about that. And then in that one moment, you just push through and you remember and you show up at the rope and you have that conversation. For some of you, it may be very different. It may be God placing in you this question, this sort of nagging inkling of, am I supposed to give my life away for missions? And then instead of dusting it off to the side or pushing it back, you say, what if every one of the days of God's faithfulness has led me to this moment to make the decision and six months later you end up on a screen telling the family that you love and miss how grateful you are that you took the opportunity to live out that part of your story. For some of you, it may be sticking around when you want to go. For some of you, it may be going when you want to stick around. What is that moment For some of you, it may be more than one, but I promise you this, if you're a Christian, there's one. And for many of us, there are many. And I think you and I should be as sure of the return of Christ, the end of the cliffhanger that you and I live in, as we are sure that he has come. And if that is tough for you, if when I say the word belief, it just makes you want to rub your head and say, how do I squeeze more belief into me? I want to believe. I want to have more faith. I want to have more trust in God. I want to believe that what I read in his word is actually pertinent to my life to the point that I actually read it and pray it and live it. I want to believe. Can I tell you that I think the advent and the incarnation of Christ combat three things that cause you to struggle with belief? And they're right in front of us. We all have three spiritual diseases that the advent and incarnation of Jesus combat. And the first one is amnesia. And every one of you have it. Some of y'all are way better than others. But here's what I know. Whenever I hear a shower turn on, nah, let me not be so bold. A lot of the time when I hear a shower turn on in my house, I know in the next 7 to 12 minutes, I'm going to hear, can somebody bring me a towel? I know it's going to happen. The water's running. It's just going to be a second before somebody... Can I tell you, there's not a kid in my life, including myself and my wife, who walks into the shower and thinks, you know what, this time I'm just not going to have to dry off. I'm going to try this new thing out where I put clothes on. None of you do that. And yet half of you forget to bring the towel with you. Why? Why is it that you always start your car with a set of keys and you can never find where they are? You have never sat down and been like, I don't have the keys. Shazam. You've never pulled it off. 
You always need them. Now, some of you may be fancy. You may press a button, or you may just sit down. And all that. I don't know. But can I just tell you, you always need something to get that thing going, and yet we forget it all the time. Why? You know the answer. You're busy. You got other stuff on your mind. You hop in the shower because you're too busy. You're, you're doing the whole thing. And then by the time you're ready to get out, that's when it hits you. You sit down in the car, that's when it hits you. You walk into the classroom and that's when it hits you that you forget the assignment. Why? Because you're lazy? No, because you are busy. Way, way too busy. And I'm the same way, but can I tell you this? It is very easy to miss the beautiful scenery of God's faithfulness because of your busyness. Uh, let me slow down. I'm going to throw it up behind me. It is very easy for you to miss the beauty of God's faithfulness because of your busyness. That's why you forget that your prayers were answered. And it's why you miss out on having those pieces of faith for the next prayers that come. It's why we easily forget God's goodness to us, because we are busy. One of the interesting things about God's people back then compared to us now is the form of entertainment that we have, right? So if you guys are like, I want to be entertained, most of the time you sit down and you turn something on, all right? You sit down, you pull out your phone, you sit down, you turn on the TV, you watch the game, whatever else it is. To be entertained, we couple two things, entertainment and relaxation, and we slam them together, all right? That's why more people watch football than play football. That's why, and, well, and the fact that most of us would not make the cut, right? But we still watch it. You're never gonna catch that pass from Brady to go right through your hands. You'd feel like a dummy, but you're gonna watch it. You're gonna cheer and you're gonna yell. Why? Because for us to relax, to be entertained, we sit and we watch. They, in the Old Testament, had an oral tradition, which means the things that you and I read, the fact that we have a Bible, that is a crux, a crutch, compared to what they did. They memorized the thing. They would memorize it and memorize it and read it and write songs on it. And so you and I sit down to be entertained. They would tell stories. They would circle around and they would share. Can I tell you that naturally fights against the amnesia of God's goodness? When I, I sat down with about five guys uh, for breakfast the other day, and we were just going around, what's going on with your life? And I was like, oh, gosh, not one of these again. Go around the circle. It takes forever. Are we going to do prayer requests? Are we going to talk about them? Are we going to pray about them? Which one are we going to do? Y'all ever feel like you're in that situation? And everybody's sharing. And then, of course, you get in it. And as soon as it comes to your turn, it's like, well, what am I going to share? What has God done? And then as I'm sharing, I'm like, man, God, you're, like, really good. How is it that I've gone my whole day, I haven't thought about this until I was faced with needing to share with someone else? It's a habit that we need to build of sharing what God has done in your life recently. And it will begin to fight against amnesia. The other thing is, we talk about a personal faith. My personal faith with Jesus. My personal quiet time. I'm worshiping in my car. They didn't have that sort of mentality. Their mentality was everything was community. We do this in community. So sharing what was going on in their lives was very common for them. And it was pretty visible as well as you could see what was going on in other people's lives. You don't have air conditioning. You don't close the door as much. You get to see inside. You get to uh, fellowship and spend time together. But we have all these little compartments of our lives, all these little boxes, all these little hiding places that we can tuck ourselves into. I don't think God has done one thing for you in your life that was for you. 
not just for you. Just think about that. There is not one thing God has done for you that was just for you. It was done so that you would share. What you and I are reading tonight is Mary sharing. See what God has done. And don't just listen as an observer, somebody eating popcorn, watching a screen. Enter into this. I want us to understand and appreciate our Bibles more. And that's why Mary presses in. Look at verses 48 and 49. He's looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Drop all the way to 50. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Mary's expectation was that the thing that happened in her personal life would be of benefit to other people's lives. Not because she's amazing, that's well established, but because God is. And she wanted her generation and the next generation and our generation to hear how great is our God. Let me give you one more thing I think you should do if spiritual amnesia is something that you struggle with. You struggle remembering what God has done. Can I just tell you, you should jot down Psalm 77. That should just be a, a back pocket, write it in the margin of your Bible. When I am forgetting if God has been good, when I'm struggling to remember the things God has done for me, Psalm 77. I'm just going to read a, a quick insert and ask you, enter into this. I sought the Lord in my day of trouble. My hands were continually lifted up all night long. I refused to be comforted. I think of God, I groan, I meditate, my spirit becomes weak. This person is not doing great. And then here's what they say, verse five. I consider days of old, years long past. Will the Lord reject forever and never again show favor? Verse eight, has his faithful love ceased forever? There's this checklist of God's faithfulness in Psalm 77. When you are struggling to remember, if God has been good to you, I would just encourage you, go and begin reading that. The second one is this, spiritual schizophrenia. Now, schizophrenia is a real issue. It's a real disease, so I'm not making light of it by bringing it up in this. I've been uh, watching a, a show lately that deals with schizophrenia, and I've sort of been entering in, and I think that's probably why it was on my mind while I was reading this. But here's what it's going to take for you to appreciate this. I know where we are in the sermon we're in the sermon where you kind of need like the little shake it off place. I got it. I'm giving it to you right now because I'm about to read a semi-complicated scripture and I want you to, to stick with me, all right? How on earth could we have spiritual schizophrenia? Well, let's fast forward to where Jesus is. This is John chapter eight, born, grown, going into ministry, and he's surrounded by these people who are acting like they're interested in him and here's what happens. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. He's just making a very general statement. If you have, and remember slavery was a little different back then. If you have a servant, if you have an employee who works for you, works for your house, and you die and you have a son, that employee is not expecting to get your entire inheritance, right? It goes to your blood relative. It goes to your son. That's what Jesus is saying to them. But then he goes on and he says this. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Drop all the way down to verse 40, 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I 
came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but God sent me. What's happening here, and stick with me on this, is Jesus is looking at people who were born out of the line of Abraham. They were Jewish. And they look at Jesus, and they're like, what do you mean slave? We've never been enslaved to anyone in our entire life. And Jesus says, but here's the deal. If you have sinned, and spoiler alert, all of them had sinned. If you don't have a way to deal with that sin, you are a slave to that thing. But what I'm inviting you into is to be a part of a family that isn't born by blood or the decision of a mom and a dad. It is a family that is born out of belief and out of faith. So here's what I'm asking you. Jesus looks at me and says, are you gonna pin your hopes on being part of the prominent family of Abraham or are you gonna realize that Abraham was brought into God's family because he had faith and will you enter into that family by believing in me and Jesus looks at me and says but I know where you're at you want to kill the very one who came to give you this opportunity you know when we think about Mary I don't know if you've thought about this Mary didn't make this call it wasn't like the angel showed up and said, Mary, okay, so we have option A and we have option B. Option A, you continue living your life. Relationship with Joseph probably won't be very rocky. Uh, you're just gonna kind of go on and live your life and have children. Name one of them James. It'll be great. Move on with your life. Or option B, the Son of God can be through the Spirit of God placed in you. And all of the difficulty that is going to come with that, including watching your own son die publicly in a humiliating way, he didn't give Mary the option. Now, you may find that, uh, I think a lot of people in our culture would find that a little oppressive. Consider what's going on in the news and whether a child is the right of the mom or they have their own substance and they don't need uh, to be spoken for by someone else. Well, God makes it very clear. He steps into this situation and says, Mary, this is what's going to happen. What's going to happen is I am going to do this thing and you are going to be a part of it. And can I just tell you, as a person of faith, that blesses my socks off. I am so grateful that God didn't look at Will and say, these are the things that I'm calling you to do in your life. Now, good luck. I hope you can pull it off. I am so grateful that Psalm 139 told me that every one of my days was written before one of them came to be. I don't know what December 12th looks like, but God knows exactly what December 12th looks like. And he looks at Will and he looks at you if you're trusting in him. And he says, I'm going to give you everything that you need. All you have to do is be the man, be the woman that I have called you to be, and I will bring this to pass. And that's when our spiritual schizophrenia kicks in. This sort of wrestling with our identity is your identity and your persona, your pursuit going to be about who you are or who God is calling you to be? Every moment that you and I are not filled with the Spirit of God, being moved by the Spirit of God, we make ourselves vulnerable to spiritual schizophrenia. What is most important to me? What am I gonna do for me? Me, 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 when the Spirit of God is saying, look, put me to death. There are no beautiful endings at the end of that. The fade to black does not come up. The cliffhanger only hangs. But if you would put your faith and trust in me, I have a story written that is absolutely beautiful for you. And then finally, the third spiritual disease that I think the advent and the incarnation, the coming of Christ like us combats, is loneliness. What I find interesting about these three things is all of us struggle with amnesia and remembering what God has done. 
all of us struggle with which person we are going to be. I know who you're going to be on a Sunday night. The question is, what do you look like on a Wednesday on your way to work? What do you look like on a Friday night? I, I know what you guys are going to look like on a Sunday night. What do we look like those other days and nights? We, we struggle with that. Jesus did not. Jesus never once had to remember how good God was. He was in complete communion with him. Jesus never once had to struggle with, well, am I going to do what I'm going to do? Even when the devil presents him with kingdoms of the world, he's like, get behind me, Satan. I've already made this decision. I know who I am. I know what I'm going to be. But Jesus was lonely. He knows exactly what it is like to feel the way you feel when it comes to loneliness. And really, I don't think it's just loneliness. I think it's not being known. Here's what John 1 says. The true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Think about that. He created this entire... Imagine for a moment, if you have kids, if every morning your kid woke up and looked at you, they didn't know that you were mom or dad. And that would be infinitesimally small compared to what it was like for Jesus to walk our streets and walk with people who had no clue who he was. Every morning they wake up and they look at you like you're a stranger. You go to do something for them and they don't know if they can trust you. Jesus knows what it's like to be lonely. So much so that he chose to know what it was like just so that you would be able to relate to him. One of the things that fascinates me is this. When Mary was pursuing God, her pursuit was Old Testament. Imagine what that must have looked like. Uh, to, to think of God as this big guy who's in control and he holds all things in his hands. But how do I know how God feels? How do I know how God acts? How can I enter into that? Well, when Jesus comes, he invites us because he came and he knows everything just like us. You can read through this. In the scriptures, the Bible says that Jesus marveled at something, that Jesus had sorrow, that he was deeply moved, that he wept, that he cried and prayed through tears. You ever done that? So did Jesus. He knows how you feel. And he invites you to know him. He rejoiced. He was like us in every way except for one, except for sin. And sin has this reflex. Some of you guys brush your teeth a little bit too well and you get the tongue and then you go back a little far and, and somebody in the other room hears you go, Bleh, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about. You're just going after it a little too hard. And you're like, well, I'm not gonna have bad breath. I'd rather gag in the bathroom than walk out of here with bad breath. I love the smile. I know who you are now. I know who you are now. It's a reflex. You can't do anything about it. The moment you sin, there is a reflex, and that reflex is to separate you from people. Adam and Eve sin, and what do they do? Their reflex, we're going to go and hide. You sin against a friend, and what do you do, man? You want to hide it. You want to change it. You want to make it seem better than it is. You sin against your spouse, and what do you want to do? Well, it wasn't really that bad. You hide how bad it was, or you hope they don't find out. That is exactly what sin does. Nothing you can do about it. That is a reflex that can only be changed by God. But here's what I want you to know. That reflex between you and Christ only exists one way. This is the beauty of the sinlessness of Jesus. There is nothing in the person of Christ that by reflex wants to be separate from you. If you have ever felt pushed away by God, if you have ever felt separate from him, that is a you thing. It is not a God thing. Why? Because we see who he is. I'm gonna close with this. Look at verse 50. 
His mercy is for those who fear him. Do you need God's mercy? From generation to generation, he has been giving it. He's shown strength with his arm, scatters the proud and the thoughts of their hearts, brings down the mighty from their thrones. There was a king in that day who could have come and visited Jesus. Do you know what his reflex was? Go find that child and kill him. That was Herod's response. But do you know what? Other rulers showed up. The highest of rulers to the lowest of shepherds come and surround themselves around Christ. Why? Because verse 52, he exalts those of humble estate. He fills the hungry with good things. And the rich, he sends away empty. When you understand the manger, you understand your need for the cross. You need a savior who knows what it's like to be you. And Jesus does. And in communion, that's what he invites us to. He invites us to recognize that he put on flesh like us. And he put on blood like us. And he felt lonely like us. He felt broken like us. He rejoiced like us. He was excited like us. And yet, every one of us, if we want to be able to pursue God, if we want to be written into that story, if we don't want to just watch Mary from a distance, but enter into that story, there is one way to do it. And it's not a plastic cup, and it's not a bit of grape juice, and it's not a little wafer. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that he was the son of God? Do you believe that he went on a tree that you and I would have decorated with all of our best attempts, and he just puts himself there so that you can be made right with him? All of your amnesia, all of your schizophrenia, and all of your loneliness cured because he took every bit of it on. What we're going to do is we're going to respond with communion. The band wants to go ahead and come on down. That'd be great. And this is my question. This cup is for people who are believing, people who are trusting in Christ. If you're not believing, I want to pray with you. I want to talk with you. If you're struggling, I'm going to be over there. We'll have a couple of folks over there. But for those of you who are trusting in Christ, I'm going to, I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to invite you to come down and take this back to your seat, and then we're going to receive together. Pray with me if you would. Father, in your word, you invite us into the experience of somebody who is given a responsibility that was so much greater than them. And in that experience, we are able to look and see that the only thing that made them able, the only thing that made them worthy was the fact that you stepped in. You gave them belief. You gave them the ability to live out the role and the act that you had called them to. And there are people filling in this room, Father, that need to know where they play out that story. And Father, if we're living and if we're breathing, we are not done yet. There are acts that you need for us to play. There are roles for us to fill. There are words for us to say. Father, remind us of your goodness to us. Help us fight that, that desire to put on one persona versus another. And whenever we feel lonely, whenever we feel broken, whenever we feel empty, may we realize that you sent your son to feel exactly what we did so that we could come near to you. Father, draw us near now. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.